0: Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecher.
1: Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing: Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick the brains of 25 of the world's best homebrewers and give you their tips, tricks, and secrets. And hey, there's a new one coming forward soon, too. All about simplicity.
0: Whee! That's right, man. we got to decide on a title for it so we can actually start telling people what it is. Yeah, well,
1: uh, I, I, I think we should probably just keep it simple. <laughs> now between the two of us we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience i'm the guy known for weird
0: beer and strange ideas and i'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out
1: and on today's episode we're going to head to the pub where we're going to check in on the beer news and boys it been a busy couple of weeks yep. and then yeah Uh, Stop by the library real quick to revisit a, well, what had been a something other than beer and is now something all about beer. And then into the brewery, we're going to talk a little bit about some homebrew charity. And finally, before we get into the lounge where we talk to one of my favorite people here in L.A., Brian Herbie Herbertson of Simsey's Brewery, all about you know his you know sort of adventures in a brew pub that's built on a second floor.
0: You know, I've seen some upstairs breweries before and I can't imagine
1: how that can work. I know the math works. It still just defies me. Yeah. But, and then, of course, we'll get your questions answered and then we'll give you a quick tip and something other than beer before we get you
0: on your way. But before we do all that, please take a minute and listen to these messages from our sponsors so you can help support the show. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by PicoBrew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with PicoBrew. And by Craftmeister and BTF 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon a.k.a. the National Homebrewers Conference, a.k.a. the best beer event in the world. This year, HomebrewCon heads to Portland, Oregon, a.k.a. Beervana. HomebrewCon features brewing seminars, a trade show with the latest homebrew technology, and fun nighttime events that celebrate the awesome community of homebrewers. HomebrewCon is June 28th through June 30th. Visit homebrewcon.org to register. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
0: Welcome back. Before we dive into today's episode, we got a few announcements to make, and Drew's going to kick it off.
1: Did you catch last week's episode of The Brew Files, episode 36, doubling down with Andy Black? Uh, Andy is uh, one of my favorite people in L.A. He's kind of an interesting and uh, fairly opinionated man. So giving uh, his talk about cast beers and really about some of the other weird things that he's done, including the reiterated mashing technique, which we may or may not talk about later. So that's uh, that's last week's brew files. Remember, you can find that anywhere that you find our show. Just you know, go click on the link. Go enjoy it.
0: That's right. And uh, it's about time to talk about brewing disasters again. Uh, next episode, two weeks away. We want to uh, tell people about our brewing disasters and yours. So uh, we've gotten a few submissions already. If you have had a brewing disaster that you'd like to share with the rest of the homebrew world to uh, either give them something to laugh at or help them prevent it happening to them, Write in. You can write us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can leave us a phone message at 626-765-1AL and tell us all about your disaster, and uh, we'll put it on the show. Yeah, we
1: really like the voicemails because that sounds much more interesting than Denny and I reading (laughs) things. Yeah, right, man. Who wants to listen to us if they don't have to? And for me, it's also more work for Denny, which is a double bonus. Yay! Yeah, right. Make Denny work more. And then, of course, speaking of Portland, as we're getting ready to go there, uh, the very first thing that we're going to be doing when we're in Portland is on Wednesday, June 27th. We're going to be hanging out at Culmination Brewing with our good friends and sponsors, Brewcraft USA. They're going to be throwing a party that's free for you to attend, all 1980s-themed, with a bunch of 1980s collaboration beers available for you to drink. You can buy swag. You can buy wrap, Tickets. We're going to be giving away some prizes. I'm going to be asking trivia questions to make people go, why is he so mean?
0: And remember, there are going to be uh, several parties going on on Wednesday night, uh, the 27th, but this is the one you really want to be at.
1: It's free, and it's awesome.
0: (laughs) It's free, and it's awesome. What more do you need? Totally tubular. Really. We also want to remind you about our affiliate sponsor, BruceWag.com. If you need some uh, Wag shirts, glasses, any of that kind of stuff, Go to brucewag.com, check them out, and uh, you'll be helping to support the podcast.
1: And speaking of supporting the podcast, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or
0: more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Habitat for Humanity. And you got one more month to get in on this. Uh, Habitat for Humanity Drive is going to run through the end of June. So go to the website, click on the Patreon link, toss us a few bucks, and we will pass it along to Habitat for Humanity, and uh, you can help people build their own homes.
1: Yep, that's right. Any pledges in this month, aka the month of June 2018, depending upon which time of time you're listening to this, you time-traveling fool, June 2018, that's when our last collections are going to happen. So if you pledge during this month, June 2018, your pledges will go to Habitat for Humanity. And, hey, don't forget that, well, you know, that means it's the six-month mark, which means it's time for us to find another charity. Do you have a suggestion for us? Just drop us a
0: line, send us an email, send us a text, throw a smoke signal up in the air. We like it. Or use that great phone number, 626-765-1AL. Give us a call. Tell us who should be our next charity.
1: Denny, you know what time it is? Feedback. Feedback! (laughs) <laughs> That's right, folks. We changed it up on you. And we had a <laughs> mega piece of feedback coming uh, to us uh, via email. Uh, Matt Skillstead uh, commenting on the Brew Files episode about speed brewing that we did a couple of weeks ago. And you know, the whole idea being, hey, how to squeeze more beer in less time so that you can have more beer for parties, life, whatever. And Matt writes in and says, I enjoyed your episode about speedy brewing. Brewing fast is my thing. I have four kids, five and under. Oof. So time is a premium. I wanted to share a few things that I do because I have a slightly different take on it and it may be helpful to others. I have my process condensed into one two-hour, 30-minute shot, avoiding any pre-prep, etc., which affords me the flexibility to brew whenever it works without having to plan ahead. Uh, he says, I was inspired by the philosophy Short and Shoddy project. I, I didn't want to go that far, but inspired by that, I looked at my entire process and cut every bit of time I could where I thought it would not affect the quality noticeably. By no means do I think what I do is the best way or the only way to do things, but it allows me to brew often enough, and the beers are no worse that I can tell. Here are the main things I ch- in my standard process. It says he has an anal retentive checklist. He orders his grain bill combined. He has a brewing caddy that holds all of the, his tools, his refractometer, pH meter, thermometer, etc. He uses hot tap water to save on the heating time, and he doesn't have to worry about it because he doesn't have chlorinated water or, or water softener. Uh, He does adjust with lactic acid, gypsum, or calcium for pH and flavor. He does full volume, no sparge, brew-in-a-bag mash, so he can save time on the sparge. It has a 40-minute mash, and he's found that that is his sweet spot. He does first-word hops for bittering, and then he does a 30-minute boil and just his hop amounts to get the appropriate uh, IBUs. He says he hasn't had a noticeable DMS, which makes sense with modern malts. Chills right away, no hop stands. I'd rather do a two or five minute addition than doing a hop stand uses dry yeast. So he doesn't have to do a starter or he'll brew a low gravity beer just to get the yeast cake and do that instead of doing a starter. Other tip is to ferment in a food grade trash bag for mitter liner. So you can save time on brew day and keg day. And he says that he got this idea from us originally and gave us a few, uh, links for places to go find these liners. Uh, remember that came from our episode with Jay Ankeny back on the brew files about uh, brewing with extract. Does five gallon batches instead of 10, because you'd rather get the extra, uh, the extra time and the extra variety and make a list of what sucked each time I brew and attempt to solve those problems for the next time. So that he has continual
0: process improvement somewhere in the back of my brain. I think he might be an engineer boy. You know what, man? I think that is one of the best ideas I've heard in a long time. (laughs) yeah because really you if something goes wrong you tend to just kind of try and put it out of your head you know no matter how much of a nightmare it is and uh, by actually taking note of what went wrong so you can address that the next time you brew that's a that's a
1: killer idea well remember in order to be the change that you want to be and be able to embrace the change that you want to be you have to first remember what the change is
0: wow that was a little bit too zen even for me um <laughs> okay man i guess it's uh time to uh, admit that we screwed up huh
1: yes and by uh by we you mean me well so, yeah uh, eric pierce a longtime listener in igor uh wrote in regarding the smoked wheat beers from poland that i discussed with uh, joshua bernstein back in episode 66 and i'm gonna screw this up so royally it's not even funny so let's go ahead and you know just pre-prep this by saying I can't pronounce anything in English. I pronounce most things in English fairly poorly anyway. So the second that we move into a foreign language, particularly a foreign language with funny characters in it,
0: I'm hopeless. So <laughs> I'm from Iowa where uh, I we can't pronounce anything. That's true. Just corn. Um,
1: <clears throat> all right. So uh, it says uh, Grotsky, the low gravity beer made with oak smoked wheat that hails from Poland is definitely not pronounced Grotsky. Yeah. See, I just did it again. It's more like Grzyski. You need to roll the R. And I'm pretty certain I still screwed that one up. Yeah. Uh, the Germans have a name for it, too, called Grazer. Uh, still not Gratski. Yes, thank you. As parents, you should learn the battle cry of all the Polish homebrewing community. Jestem pivarvam Domovim?
0: Oh, man, I- I'm having so much fun listening to you do this, because you usually make me do that stuff. I know, and I'm terrible at it. That's the reason why I'm making <laughs> oh, this is great. We may have to like uh, play this part every week.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it says all you need to know for that one is that the W is pronounced like a V. Yeah, that still didn't help me. Uh, <laughs> that's from Eric, and he says, "P.S. Don't let the the name fool you. Uh, both my parents were Polish. My father changed his name from
0: uh, something uh, Piskowski." <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Yeah, that'll work. Hey, Eric, thanks for that, man. I, I appreciate the information and I even more appreciate you making Drew sound like a fool.
1: Yeah, and this is uh this is your daily weekly segment of uh Drew sounding like an idiot.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't worry, it'll be my turn soon enough. Praise baby Jesus. Really. Okay, I think maybe we need to go have a beer to recover from that. Yes, please.
1: And it's not gonna be a Grotsky. <laughs>
0: Or whatever. Yeah, I know it's not going to be a Gratsky because it doesn't exist. (laughs) We're going to stroll over to the Experimental Brewing Pub, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about the beer life, so please stick around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon High Desert Farm. Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit Mechagrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back, everybody. We have made our way over to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA. And we are drinking beer. What are you having today,
1: Drew? A couple of weeks ago, we had my good buddy uh, Kit Barnes from Los Angeles Aleworks on to talk about his Cool Ship project. Well, it also turns out that Kit makes beers that aren't Cool Ship related. And he launched a, a rebrew of one of my favorites of his, which is called Me Seeks Juice. Me6 Juice Hazy Double IPA that comes in cans they are very Rick and Morty themed. And what's clever about it is he has sort of figured out a way that he says at least to make it either hazy or clear depending upon how you pour the beer. So you get to choose. But it's a really wonderful beer. Lots of hop character. A lot of those hop oils. But without that sort of orange pith bitterness that I'm getting from a lot of hazy IPAs these days. So ah. me six Juice at 8.4%. It's not your father's New England IPA. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's good to know. I'm uh, I'm going traditional once again. I'm having an Iyengar Bavarian Pilsner. You know, the weather is finally starting to warm up here in Oregon. It's the mid-70s and bright sunshine today. I know that Drew's laughing at that. No, it's uh,
1: mid-70s here, too. I'm
0: okay, fine. okay. But you know what? It is just one of those days that makes you want to have a pilsner, and uh, this is this is a great, great example of a straight-ahead German pilsner. Uh, slightly higher bittering than you will find in some of the bohemian pills, all Hallertau hops, great, sweet malt character to it. Uh, they say that uh, it has a floweriness from the hops, and I could almost uh, get that from it uh, in the aroma. Definitely, definitely a pronounced bitterness, which is what I really like in the pills to, uh, to balance out that malt. So uh, if you haven't tried one of these beers, go find one that's in good shape from somebody that doesn't keep it under fluorescent lights. Give it a try. It's uh, a pretty available beer.
1: Yeah, and hopefully it's available enough and fresh enough that it's not going to suck from age.
0: I just know that uh, our uh, local good beer shop, uh, the Beer Stein has it and it's in brilliant shape every time I've gotten it there and so uh, I'm optimistic that other people can find it in good shape too. Well, there you go. But
1: thinking about things not in good shape and things that are not fun the long-standing I I mean, I can't think of any other way to put it, but the long-standing institution of all about beer has gone the way of the dodo, at least in terms of physicality.
0: That's all about beer magazine for those of you who may not have heard of it.
1: Yep. all about Beer Magazine. They have been in print for thirty-seven years thereabouts. Yeah, so sort of quite a number of years, and they've been around since really, really before craft brewing even had a name. Uh, they they were around and they wrote about the Malto's Falcons when they first appeared, and they gave us free copies of it. So that's part of the reason why I know them so well. But they. Uh, They've been around reporting on the whole beer industry and everything about craft beer for all those years. And they just announced, uh, as we're going to record, that they are shutting down the physical distribution of All About Beer and switching solely to a digital operation.
0: And there's even some... uh speculation about uh, how long that's going to last
1: yeah it's it's always a question and i mean they're not the first publication long-running publication of beer to announce that same thing this year uh celebrator mirror magazine out of northern california also announced that they were going all digital uh but i do have good faith that celebrator will hang around just if nothing if no other reason than Tom staldorf is uh stubborn.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, all about beer though has uh, been there for a long time um and it's just I guess maybe a sign of the way things are going in the industry, huh. Let's face it,
1: I mean everybody keeps saying print is dead, print keeps proving them wrong, but niche print is really really hard to make work.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, they can keep it alive with an electronic version or uh, Whether their financial uh, issues are enough that uh, it's just going to sink them completely.
1: And then in other sort of, well, (laughs) things getting dropped news... uh, I call this, you can't believe how stupid some people are in news. Oh, well, I can, because it's no effects. (laughs) I mean, come on. They've been stupid for years. It just finally bit them in the
0: butt. Yeah, I I know nothing about this band, but uh, uh, now I guess I know more than enough about them.
1: Right, so... NoFX, the long-standing uh, (laughs) Los Angeles punk band, they've been around for a really long time, Uh, they got into trouble recently because they had a concert in Vegas where they made fun of the shooting victims of the Route 91 Harvest Festival last October. Remember that massive shooting? Uh, Sort of that big old tragedy where lots of people ended up getting hurt and, and killed And they made fun of the whole events because they were like, oh, look, you know, we're paying in Vegas and nobody shot us. You know, that's because, you know, at least those guys who got shot were country music fans, not punk fans.
0: Yeah. And I, you know what, man, I won't even repeat any of the vile stuff that they said because it's just, it's just Uh, disgusting.
1: Well, and the reason why we're bringing this into a beer podcast and not a punk or music podcast is because Stone Brewing Company has been doing a collaboration with them and released a beer called uh, Punk and Drublick. And it was a collaboration between Stone and No NoFX, and it was also uh, Stone's sponsorship of No uh, NoFX's uh, uh, Punk and Drublick uh, festival that they're putting on in Ohio, I think, basically as we're going to, to press. And Stone basically instantly announced they are no longer going to collaborate with NoFX. The proceeds for the beer are going to be donated to the Las Vegas uh, Police Department's uh, foundation, which uh, helps give trauma counseling to first responders, uh, particularly those involved in this particular shooting incident. And I mean, Stone basically uh, took them to task, and the backlash actually got bad enough that the punk and drubble c- uh, camp, uh, the people actually putting on the concert not only did they lose stone as a sponsor but they also immediately kicked off no fx and fat mike's other band that were headlining the show so and they instantly announced replacements so i hate to say dummies but dummies yeah man stupidity has consequences Yep, and of course yeah like i said it, this coming from no fx uh, It's not entirely surprising. I mean, their humor has always been uh, dark, edgy, and offensive. It's just that sometimes there are things that you don't get to be dark, edgy, and offensive about and get away with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So good on Stone for doing that. And, of course, it's interesting given that Stone had their own sort of uh, backlash problems with the social media stuff with some misogynist tweets from earlier last year or late last year. And uh, so it's interesting to see them step up and go, hey, wait a second, that's not cool. Uh, any other comments about that story? Any Anything else that you can think of? I don't know what else there is to say about it. Uh, All, right. All right. And the shame is the beer itself is actually a decent beer. So. Yeah. Well, you know
0: what? Fine. But that's not a good enough reason.
1: No, no, it's not. But Stone also said they're not going to brew it anymore. So the the beer is dead. Long live the beer. Let's
0: move on. All right. So uh, the next story uh, is about something that has kind of like been publicized quite a bit uh, recently. It was an interview with uh, Sean Hill of Hill Farmstead Brewery in Vermont. He did an interview uh, when he was in uh, Pilsen in the Czech Republic. And basically the quote that got all the attention was, mental health and alcoholism never get discussed in the beer industry. And, uh, you know, he made some really, really good points in this interview. But then uh, a little bit after that, uh, he had to write a letter kind of explaining that this really wasn't what the interview was about. It was a five-minute segment out of an hour-long interview that the uh, writer had taken and made the subject of the, the entire article. And, you know, um, I-, I can see both sides of his points. He does make some very, very good points about uh, about alcoholism in the industry I mean I go to beer festivals and I see people drinking amounts of beer that uh, just stun me and uh, you know a lot of them think that they're dealing with it and uh, from other points of view maybe it doesn't look like that so much his points about uh, mental health just kind of had to do with uh, all the stress that was on him uh, in, on the brewery—I don't think he was actually saying that uh, that the drinking contributed to a mental health decline. Was he?
1: No, I mean he was. It, well, he was saying it didn't help. I mean, here are some of the quotes that he said. And he said, uh, "It would be amazing if, at the craft brewers conference uh, one year, there was a seminar or talk dealing with alcohol. It would probably be the worst attended seminar be- ever because nobody wants to admit it." I don't know anyone in the beer world who isn't struggling with it. Look at every photo from festivals like the McKellar Beer Celebration. People are just drinking 10 glasses of beer every day and living this wild traveling lifestyle. It isn't really healthy. Since 2013, when he got rated number one by Rape Beer, he said that he started thinking about shutting down the brewery every day just due to the stress of it. And he says, my mental health at that time was probably, uh, beep. Uh, I was doing 12 to 14 hours days and because I lived 15 feet away from the brewery, there was very little decompression. I would typically drink too much in order to artificially decompress and then I wouldn't sleep well. Then I woke up, I would still be tired, so then I would drink as much caffeine as I could which would then accelerate an overall sense of anxiety. It was a vicious circle. Uh, I felt like shutting the brewery down every day, but at the same time you need that darkness to define your success or you have something to aspire to. So well, what I thought was interesting about—I mean, there isn't a single thing that he said in here that I don't think is not true. I mean, I think it's his own personal reflection on what he's seeing, yeah. You know, and so it's his own personal truth here, and and I agree. I don't think the industry talks about it nearly enough. Um, what I think was more surprising to me about than the comments about this was how everybody responded to it, and more importantly, the fact that he tried to walk it back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean reading the responses to this, you would have thought that he was declaiming the whole alcohol industry and that he was claiming that the whole thing should be shut down and et cetera, et cetera. And I really, it reads more reasonable this. I mean, I know lots of people in both the brewing worlds and particularly the restaurant worlds where, you know, rampant overuse of alcohol and other um, adulterants uh, are widespread. I mean, it's, It's a a real problem, and people don't tend to talk about it. But now the industries are both changing. They are starting to embrace some of it. But I was just really, really surprised that he he felt the need and that the public felt the need to lash at him for it, and that he felt the need to walk it back.
0: Yeah, that, that is interesting. I mean, I think that the points in the article, whether that's what he intended the interview to be about or not, were very well made and serious points that people should consider. Yeah, and it it is kind of a shame that he had to kind of then go, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't really mean that. Well, and what he says in his response, when he's
1: walking it back, he says, I am made to appear that I took an interview in order to talk about all my peers for being drunks and mentally ill. The quotes and lead are out of context and frankly quite frustrating. I was asked to conduct conduct this interview as it coordinated with my keynote speech on innovation in the brewing industry. And it was a casual interview. Um, So here's the thing. He wasn't quoted inaccurately. He's not saying that he was quoted inaccurately. <laughs> right. Uh, he says that the quotes are out of context, but, you know, I'd be curious to see what context makes that any different. And the other thing, of course, is people getting frustrated with the uh, the press and, and how they'll they'll choose to report things. Remember, if you're on the record, yeah, the uh, anything that you say can and will be used against you in the court of the press.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's like... Uh... I don't know, this guy doesn't seem real naive, so I don't know why he was uh, upset and uh, surprised that those are the quotes that got used.
1: Yeah, and of course there are also uh, lots of reactions from other brewers that we've talked with who are like, hey, you know, look, one of the things I've noticed is that, yeah, my drinking habits changed when I went professional. Some people saying they got more, some people saying they got less, uh, because frankly, after a day of uh, brewing, they don't necessarily want to sit there and get hammered again. Uh, Makes perfect sense. But I mean, to me, you got to remember when you're talking to the press, uh, you know, things things will get presented as things are presented. You may not always be happy with it, though.
0: Yep. And as members of the press, which we marginally are, uh, you know, we uh, will try not to present anyone in a bad light but if you say something interesting you can bet that we're going to zero in on that
1: yeah and the other thing of course was there were other comments about uh, the author of this particular article over in the morning advertiser james Beeson, uh, saying that other brewers felt like they had been taken out of context by him as well and uh, again i mean it, reading through the stuff that people are objecting to what it really seems like is that he has found angles on the subject or angles on the interview that people weren't expecting to be the main thrust and running with it so yeah there you go
0: okay well let's have enough of that and let's move on over to the library to talk about ancient beer huh yes ancient beer
1: ancient beer
0: (laughs) all right please stick around while we listen to these messages from our sponsors and we'll be right back ych hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the pacific northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chilaca is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of chilaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for chilaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Ooh. Welcome to the library. We're kicking back here amongst the books, and we're going to talk about a video about ancient beer that is really, really
1: cool. Remember a couple episodes back in the Something Other Than Beer segment, I talked about the British Museum and their YouTube channel, and how I thought it was particularly awesome because they showed curators talking about their different artifacts that they were working on, the context, and how all this stuff worked, right? Awesome, but not about beer, even though a good number of the stuff is related to Sumerian cuneiform. Well, they have a new show on the British Museum YouTube channel called um, uh, "Pleasant Vices," and in episode three, their food historian uh, Tasha Marks was joined by uh, Michaela Charles, who's a brewer, and a beverage consultant Susan Boyle to go make an ancient Egyptian beer. And they actually uh, talking about, you know, like how they went about and did this, and they did three different variants of the beer. Based on the best information that they could find, you know, with you know all the artifacts that they have in the British Museum and other places, and it was really cool to see
0: these three women talking about, like, well, okay, this is what they did, right? And uh, by ancient beer, they are talking about beer that was made in the three thousand to fifteen hundred BC area. So I guess that stuff's going to be well aged by now. What I thought was interesting was that they talked about a couple of different things, and
1: they they did some of this in, of the three variants, they did some in stainless steel, they did other parts of it in uh, the clay jar. And really remember that in ancient Egypt, beer was, I mean, it was fundamental. All right, it was, I mean, we, we love beer. The Egyptians, just like the Sumerians and Babylonians before them, were absolutely bananas about beer. And so they actually took this process based a little bit on the Himdenakazi, which we've always talked about in the past, and did this where it was kind of cool. They did the one part I had never seen before. The, all the ancient beers I did, and I did one years ago, started with a baked bread and a barley mash. And this one, they actually did two separate mashes one was done cold, and the other one was done hot. And the reason for that was the idea was that the hot mash would provide you your heat. But, of course, you didn't have thermometers at the time, so you couldn't hold it at like 152. So what they did was they used the hot mash to provide the heat and the cold mash to provide the enzymes. <laughs> and so when you combine the two mashes together, the law of averages, la, 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 it would settle into about the right temperature range and start to convert. So it was really kind of uh, kind of cool where they, you know, they they did this slightly different technique. And, of course, the beer itself is not boiled uh and so you got sort of a short time frame to do this on the other thing that they they said was that they they did a couple of different runs one where they just did it straight up no no flavorings no adulterants right you know no no additional pieces and then they did another version of it with you know sort of different ingredients that they added to it i think uh, trying to remember uh, rose hips was one of them i think uh, uh coriander uh, uh I no rashes, but there were some honey and some other things. <laughs> radishes was in the one I did, ah. um, and they they were really thinking that they were going to get a sort of a thick soupy thing, right? Because that's how we always talk about it, and we always talk about, oh, you know, they got these special straws that they that they could drink so it filtered the beer as they were drinking it, so they wouldn't get all the grain and the husk material and whatnot. And they they said they actually found that even with after doing the uh, rose petals and the pistachios and the sesame seeds and the coriander and the cumin. And all this sort of stuff that the beer actually settled out amazingly clear. And the other one that was interesting was we kind of think of old, uh, old-fashioned old beer as being sort of low alcohol. And they had a real struggle keeping their beer under 5%. <laughs> well, that's,
0: that's not too bad.
1: No, but I mean, remember, again, we are talking about, you know, sort of the challenging of assumptions about ancient beer. So it's a really cool video. It's not that long. It, I'm, it was like 14 minutes. 14 minutes. Yeah, 14 minutes, and it's part of a, a, a four-part series where they're going to cover uh, beer and chocolate and wine and, um, oh, yeah, aphrodisiacs. So uh, watch that one to get your love life on. Um, yeah, and so really recommended, really pleasant, and a really nice host. So uh, go, go and watch that. We'll include a link to it, but that's the British Museum's
0: Pleasant Vices Episode 3, How to Make 5,000-Year-Old Beer. Yeah, really, it uh, it was a really, really fun watch for 14 minutes, let me tell you.
1: All right, now I think it's time to go over to the brewery, because we got two things to discuss there.
0: Okay, stick around, we're going to head over to the brewery, and we'll be right back. Why Yeast Goes Rustic for this year's Private Collection Spring Release. Europe has long been exalted as the world's heart of brewing tradition, And it couldn't be truer today, as styles like Berliner Weiss and Goza of Germany are being revived through the passion of home and professional craft brewers. Belgian styles have become the flagship beers of breweries all around the globe, and continue to be the holy grail of mastery and sought-after beers. A lot of the flavor of these styles comes from the yeast and bacteria that have shaped the flavors of these regions into centuries of fine beer. YEAST is proud to bring our Berliner Weiss blend, Belgian Schelde Ale, and Britannomyces Clausenii to you in this European inspired selection. These strains are available April through July at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Over here to the brewery, the equipment is shut down today so we can talk. And uh, we're going to be talking software first. Yep. Everybody's
1: favorite beer program. Uh, Well, almost everybody's Uh, (laughs) at Beersmith. Uh, Our our good buddy Brad actually just announced that Beersmith 3 is going to be released in time for HomebrewCon. So brand new version of Beersmith out there just so that, you know, by the time that you just learned how to drive Beersmith 2... It is now time uh, for a potential upgrade. And uh, just looking through the list uh, real quick, yeah, you know, there are some new things in there, a little bit of a change to the interface, which I know a lot of people will appreciate, uh, but also adding in support for mead, wine, and cider, uh, adding in automated uh, sort of water profiles and mash pH adjustments into the recipes themselves so that they're there, and also adding some uh, pieces in there about uh, better whirlpool hop calculations, uh, so they do a better utilization model in there they're also for those of you who do not live at sea level or near sea level they also will have new stuff in there for high altitude uh, changes that are necessary uh new new stuff to do calculations on yeast starters and like i said again the uh the uh, sort of a revised look and feel so hey isn't that kind of nifty is it, uh, you know at least one of our brewing programs is still getting uh getting updated
0: yeah right you know um I I don't use BeerSmith because I'm just set in my ways, and I've been using ProMash for too many years. And fortunately, it doesn't need to be updated, at least not for what I do. I was gonna say I don't think you can update it now. No, uh, no, definitely not.
1: Uh, Sausalito Brewing Company seems to be uh, defunct uh, permanently. Yeah. But uh, the other good news is that Brad has also made back. Uh, BeerSmith Three backwards compatible with BeerSmith Two, so you'll be able to easily import all of the all the settings that you've put into BeerSmith Two and all your recipes over to BeerSmith Three if you want. And again, that's going to come out uh, just prior to HomebrewCon with a mo- the mobile version uh, following in late July.
0: All right, all you BeerSmith users, there's something to look forward to.
1: And then, of course, our next piece of uh, brewery business is something that I've been seeing recently and uh, been getting messaged about, and I think it's pretty cool. Is you know sort of a Newer and bigger take on homebrewers engaged with charity. So a couple of examples that came through, I heard from the folks down in uh, Florida from the homebrew club Zots. They've been partnering with St. Baldrick's uh, for a number of years, and St. Baldrick's is a children cancer charity. Uh, a pretty good one, and of course one of the big features about the St. Baldrick's charity stuff is usually you shave your head. So... <laughs> Uh, they said they've been uh, doing uh, work with them for a number of years and they always have a theme. And this year they're driving pledges to the, the charity fund with a shave the president theme where their president, Brian Cavins is going to actually have his head shaved at the beer run that they're going to do just to raise money for childhood cancer research. Wow. Wow.
0: I I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Good on you, Brian and better you than me. I I don't even want to think about you shaved bald. Um, But we'll
1: include a link to uh, Brian's uh, fundraising for uh, ZOTS down there in Florida. So you can uh, donate if you want. Uh, St. Baldrick's, uh, like I said, I've donated St. Baldrick's in the past. I think they're a pretty uh, pretty good charity. So, after all, it's kids and cancer, and you know the, what our opinions are on that.
0: Right. But uh, And there's also uh, another event uh, called Beer for Good that is going on in the Twin Cities in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Uh, they're going to have food. They're going to have music. They're going to have beer. It's a, a beer sampler fundraiser event. And uh, all the proceeds from the event will go to support their local nonprofit partner, which is Think Small, which is an organization that advocates for early learning for kids. And man, I'm all for that. Uh, get them when they're young and make them smart.
1: And so, of course, like we said, the unique part about this is, you know, this is all homebrewers at this uh, this festival. So uh, I think that's kind of cool. And in that same realm, uh, our friends over the SoCal Cevaceros here in L.A., they just had an event uh, that they called Cold Chilla. So, of course, you guys know that L.A. is home to the Coachella Festival, or I should say the outskirts of L.A., is home to Coachella, and so there are a bunch of little things around here that that kind of reference that. But they did their Cold Chilla festival uh, to raise money for the Gumball Foundation here in LA, and it was interesting because again, it was all homebrewers uh, doing their thing, and they had awards and all that sort of stuff. They sold over 300 tickets to it, which is you know pretty awesome. And you know what's interesting about it, one change that I noticed is a lot of times when we do homebrew festivals. Yeah, you know, homebrewers tend to be like, "Oh, look, this is my club, right?" You know, and here's uh, here's our club bar, and here's the two beers I brought. What I thought was interesting about the approach for Cold cello was that, you know, all the guys there in the Sevaceros, they effectively set themselves up as separate, independent breweries, you know, like, yeah, you know, here's my table with my, my jockey box and here are my beers and banners, you know, like, like things that made them set up and look like they were an, an actual brewery. It was very reminiscent to me, not only of, you know, like an actual, uh, commercial beer festival, but also in a lot of ways, that sort of, uh, Latino car culture thing where everybody's standing around they like, Hey, you know, this is my car, you know, this is my thing, you know, showing off their thing as an individual in the context of the larger social community as well. So, Again, I thought that was pretty rad, and I think the whole homebrew charity effort thing that is really cropping up now, particularly as laws have been changed to allow for this sort of thing to happen, is really spectacular and is a good thing. And the more of these things that we do, I think it will come in handy as we're trying to change the beer use laws in other states to allow other homebrewers to do this same sort of thing as well, because you can look and say,
0: look, look, man, we're supporting charity by doing this. Help us out. Yeah, really, man. It, you know, it, we're not just here to drink a bunch of beer and get drunk. We're here to drink a bunch of beer and help people out. And I think that that is a uh, is a great thing. Indeed.
1: Well, so what do you guys think? Uh, you know, one, what do you think of the Beersmith update? Are you looking forward to it? Are you waiting to see what the interface looks like and whether or not it finally works for you? And, you know, what do you think of the homebrew charity thing? Are there any cool ones out there that we've missed that are kind of unique? Or is there going to inspire you to try and put on one of these things yourself? You know, let us know. Podcast at ExperimentalBrew.com.
0: Okay, so I guess it's time that we wander over to the lounge and listen to an interview that Drew did. Uh, It was really a a fun interview. I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, And so that's all I'm going to say. Stick around. We'll be right back.
1: Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com.
0: It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. We're sitting here in the lounge, lounging around and getting ready to listen to Drew talk to Brian Herbertson or Herbie. That's a lot easier to say. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, nobody it, Nobody in my experience calls him uh, Brian or Herbertson. It's always Herbie. Uh, yeah, Herbie has been around the LA brew scene for quite a while. You're going to hear his uh, story, but he is now currently the brewer at Simsies, which is, well, it's kind of unique in the fact that it started off as a series of beer bars and there's still a few of them around and at one point in time they decided you know what sounds like a really good idea let's make a brewery and so they opened up a brand new facility in uh, burbank they took over an old restaurant slash music hall called chauncey's and you'll hear us talk about chauncey's in there and right near the tonight show studios and all the heart of the studio making process and they took it over and ran it as one of their little beer locations for a little bit and then finally decided okay you know we need we actually need to do this brewery thing and went and installed a brewery on the second floor of this building <laughs> it's really kind of funny but brian uh or but Herbie actually is out of that little facility, and he's only got a small system. He provides beer for all the Simsies locations around Los Angeles, and he's doing a really interesting job, and Lord knows how he's going to do it during the summer when beer demand spikes.
0: <laughs> really, man. Okay, so uh, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving. Kick back, and let's listen to Drew and Herbie talking about beer.
1: Well, now, hey, so uh, let's go ahead and have a have a little beer, shall we? Cheers. I can't start an interview without some beer no well that's good but we're gonna get to that beer later so hey guys it's drew i am here with brian herbertson aka herbie i mean does anybody actually call you anything but herbie um
2: herbie oh. was more of a riverside thing but people are now that they know about it in la um yeah it's catching on it's catching on we have a few Brian's here anyway, so it helps with like
1: I, I I can never think of you as anything but a Herbie. Uh, That's what a lot of people say. <laughs> so uh, we are we are actually sitting uh, at Simsies in Burbank, where uh, Herbie is the the brewmaster extraordinaire, and you know it, and ironically, it's it's the one year anniversary of the brewery. Yeah, you know, yeah. So uh, so Herbie, introduce yourself.
2: Um, um Herbie or Brian Herbertson. Um, been. Uh Here uh, with the Simsys folks for uh, a year in January uh, when we started build out last year. So a little over a year. Um, Brewed out at uh, Wicks Brewing in Riverside before uh, coming here for about almost four years. And uh, was home brewing for about eight or nine years prior to that.
1: Cool. And, and Simsies, what? I mean, there are like four locations now, but this is the only There's brewery? Six they're, locations. Oh, it's up to six now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This yeah. is the only brewery, though. Yeah. Yeah. And so now your job here is, I mean, what we got, this is 10, 15? Seven barrels. Seven, okay. Uh, seven barrels. Uh, they're sitting off uh, beside us over here. Your job is basically to make beer to supply the rest of the locations, Yeah, right? yeah,
2: yeah. So we make uh, we make beer specifically, almost exclusively for uh, the Simsys locations, um, which is good because I can really barely keep up, and once summer hits, I'm going to be chasing my tail for a few months.
1: Well, I was going to say, I can only imagine that at seven barrels with six places to supply, you must be uh, close to maxing out. Yeah, we
2: have three 15-barrel uh, three fermenters and one 7-barrel fermenter, and they go through about half, uh, they go through about seven, eight barrels a week of certain certain brands so uh, that that seems like you're on a losing
1: proposition then oh yeah I'm, I'm posed. <laughs> I'm gonna be dosed this summer well so now let's let's talk a little bit of the biography when did you first discover good beer
2: I first discovered good beer uh, back in the 90s um, nobody I, was alive in the 90s I, <laughs> I actually used to uh, tour with uh, punk rock bands and uh so uh i got to go to europe a bunch uh with them and uh the way the europeans approached beer was really new to me because out here it was just like guzzle it down and Mm -hmm. whatever and uh you go to different towns and like you know germany or switzerland or whatever and every town would say our beer is the best beer in germany or our beer is the best beer in the world and (laughs) and uh i tripped out because all these people were like super pumped on their local beer which like was you know and the, you know this was the the 90s micro brew uh thing was happening out here but uh it you know it was still a relatively small thing it wasn't yeah it wasn't huge and this was like culturally ingrained in the people like this all these people drink is their beer made in their town or hamlet or whatever and uh our brewery
1: makes two beers <laughs> yeah that's what they, we drink
2: that's all we drink yeah exactly so you know maybe they pop out a uh a marzen for a fest or something you know what i mean but uh, uh yeah it's like uh so that that was that was new and then uh through my travels when i was stateside um obviously like sierra pale was out there and that mm-hmm. was kind of a go-to i used to drink a lot of windmere mm-hmm. which is weird because i really i'm not into Wheat beers too much these days, <laughs> but back then I, I, I was in love with uh, with Widmere. You know, you had Pete's Wicked and all that yeah. stuff like that. And
1: uh, well, I mean, it used to be you had your your good old standbys that were always your rescues, which was Sam Adams, Sierra Nevada, Widmere exactly, and you know, Pyramid. Yeah. You know, yeah, Pyramid exactly. And and maybe you know, depending upon how you looked at it, Guinness too, right? You know, that was always oh, going to be yeah. your safety thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, you you know, when it was just all the the you know the the fizzy yellow water stuff, uh, you, yours always an option like. This get you out of it so kids these days they just don't know how good they got it <laughs> spoiled you guys are <laughs> um but yeah so so that's kind of how i got interested in it and uh i don't know it just kind of grew from there like i i just became like a like a beer i like beer i'd like i always try different stuff from wherever yeah. it was happened to be from if i saw it and uh and uh, just kind of kept evolving and kept evolving
1: and then at some point you crossed you you crossed that sort of maginot line. You went from, you know, a taster of beer to becoming a, a brewer of beer first at home. Yes,
2: yes, I jumped down that rabbit hole uh, head first, and uh, it's I'm I'm still flying down it. <laughs> so What prompted you to go through that transition? Um, I've always been uh, like in school. I was always uh, a biology kind of geek. Uh, I was into science and like chemistry and stuff like that, and. Uh, once I, I didn't even know we had a more beer in Riverside. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I discovered that and I was like, wow, I never heard about this before. So, uh, so I went down there. I didn't, you know, I never really had seen a home brew shop. So I went in there, got a little extract starter kit, my eight and a half gallon kettle and, and started boiling extract. And, uh, yeah, and just kind of went from there. I went uh, from there. I was doing like mini mash, partial mash. Uh, eventually went up to, uh, all-grain with igloo coolers for uh, HLT and mash ton Uh, always always five-gallon batch I still have I still have the original rig and all that actually one of the bartenders downstairs borrowed it from me Um, yeah
1: you're infecting another generation Uh, hoping to yeah (laughs) so do you remember what the first beer was that you made the first
2: beer was a light ale is what it was called and it came with the starter kit and it was pretty god-awful and yet you persisted, uh, yeah, but I was well I was enamored with the fact that I created beer, like this was like magic to me in my head at this time, so I was like, oh, this kind of sucks, but let's let's try it again, and so I did a couple more batches, <laughs> and uh eventually started uh got my sanitation down and all that, and uh things actually started coming out decent uh. Do you remember the first recipe that you made that was that was your recipe? The first recipe I made was an Irish Red. And I made it because it was somebody's birthday party. As homebrewers know, we mm-hmm. don't bring presents. Make me a beer for my birthday and bring it to my party. <laughs> and so uh, so I did that. And, uh, you know, people liked it. And I, I actually got hit up a lot after a while, like some years into it for... You know, once I'd bring a corny keg over and happy birthday guys and you know, or any kind of party. Um and uh yeah, it was just it was just fun. I just enjoyed it and like I like the process of it. I like watching the transformation from the me like taking these sacks of grain mm-hmm. and then mashing in and you know, there's no sugar, now it's you know, sweet wort and uh and adding, now it's dry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so uh and I still I still love love that that aspect of it. I'll i probably always love it. It's just I think it's neat that we take all these things from nature and make like a little tincture drink thing. Well you know, it's well, it, it's
1: cool. It's a little bit of science and it's a little bit of magic. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's and a whole just, hell of a lot of crossing your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, how did you go from uh, punk rock touring guy turned home now into pro brewer?
2: Uh, so, so I ended up stopping touring cause I, I was at it. I did it for about like, almost 10 years and I was going like 10 months out of the year every year and I just got burned out on all the travel, it wears you out. Um, so I went back to school at home and I started working different jobs and was doing different things. Uh, I was a marketing director for a local nonprofit charity actually. Um, that seems about
1: the least evil sort of marketing director you can be yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah, yeah. it was it was fun. Um, and uh, so anyways, but the charity ended up uh, kind of closing, going through like a weird transition thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they laid pretty much everybody off. Um, so I was looking for work, and somebody's like that I knew uh, that ran a homebrew contest that I took first place in or something, some little local thing. And uh, he called me up. He's like, hey, we're opening a homebrew, uh, a brew on premise and a uh, brew pub. Mm-hmm. And you want to be a beer tender? Would you do that? And i will yeah, I'll do it. Sure. I just need a job. You know what I mean? At this point, <laughs> Dude, I uh, got bills. Yeah, I got bills. And, you know, so, uh, so I took that job. And uh, the original brewer they had there, I ended up being <laughs> his assistant. Uh, and uh, about six months in, uh, him and Wix parted ways, and I kind of just ascended to the deck. And uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't know Wix started as a bop. They, start, they started as a homebrew supply, and they had a homebrew supply store next door. And then they they had a brew on premise system, uh, kind of like brew makers. Yeah, used, yeah, it was almost. And Dennis actually used to come out and help them get it online initially. Uh, yeah they they actually they finally got that pulled out, which I think everybody there is happier for <laughs> it now because it took up a lot of space uh, but uh yeah they had that going and so you know they changed they, you know the change happened and they gave me the job and uh it a bit of luck and and just a lot of a lot of hard work and you know reading as much as I could um you know b a books and all that sort of thing SBC mm-hmm. stuff um, just trying to learn what uh just you know i didn't i had helped this guy for six months but i was probably not necessarily ready you're still a newbie Uh, oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) i probably uh, wasn't necessarily ideal for a a head brewer just take over you know because you're we were doing outside sales and all that i never i mean i knew how to make beer but there's uh the business uh you know aspects of the production side that uh was all new to me and uh, well, it, it was some luck and the hard work and hey it, i'm still here so
0: <laughs> and i think and i
1: think there's the whole logistics thing that most people probably don't think about a lot yeah, you know. yeah, yeah and that's i mean that's incredibly difficult i mean that particularly when you're trying to i mean now you're as we said earlier you're you're supplying six different locations with all your different brands of beer that's some logistics and planning and and adjusting in order to be able to actually make sure that you don't run out and especially like just uh when you're
2: in year one you have no data to go by so you make a beer and it flies it sells out and you know you sell 15 barrels in you know a a week or whatever or make a beer and it stays around for
1: a couple months or (laughs) whatever you know what I mean um, now, is there a beer that you've made that you really loved that stayed around for much longer than you thought it would? Um, not really. the the pay our
2: pale uh, our tide pool pale is uh, is it was kind of moving a little slow, not slow, but like not as fast as I expected it to mm-hmm. at first. And now it's like it's 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 Continually increasing, and in, in, in it's how fast we go through the batches. So, the pale uh, ale is coming back, baby. The pale is coming back. I'm telling you, it never really left, but you know, it's coming
1: back. <laughs> so, okay, now it's time for my favorite question that I lo- that I love to ask brewers, omitting the word balance. Describe your brewing philosophy, omitting the word
2: balance. Um. I I try to really just go for really flavorful, uh, solid, well-made stuff, Um, you know, off-flavored, defect-free, obviously, Um, and just, like, real huge flavor. Like, uh, hoppy beers, uh, I try not to go, like, super bitter, but I I, I like to punch them with the flavor side, Mm -hmm. Um, playing with different ingredients, you know, if... It's fun trying to uh, you pitch. You have this beer in your head, mm-hmm. and then actually put something similar to that in a glass is um, always challenging.
1: But uh, yeah, yeah, just
2: you- just mixing up different ingredients um, and just solid, flavorful stuff that's uh, nice and clean drinking.
1: Well, I think before we actually run out of it in our glasses here, <laughs> know, we're almost done. We, we probably ought to talk about the, the latest thing that you're releasing. Because, again, today is your, your one-year anniversary party for the for the brewery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Simsies location here has been open, what, I think about, it was about a year longer? Uh,
2: this uh, Simsies Burbank has been open, I think, three, three and a half years.
1: Oh, wow, that took longer to open the brewery yeah. than I thought it did. Um, so let's talk about, I mean, I think it's the, the hot new trend in IPA right now, the brute. It is. IPA. Yes, and so this is which beer is this? Give the name out there. And, so this and is this, this
2: is uh, our this is our brewed IPA called uh, Beer Bank Bubbly. Um, I kind of nicknamed Burbank Beer Bank just because it was stupid and funny and entertained me. So um, Beer Bank Bubbly, um, brewed IPA. Six uh, percent ABV, mm-hmm. um, made with uh, Hallertau Blanc, uh, Huel Melon, and some uh, Cryo Equinot pellets.
1: You know, I was gonna say one thing I've noticed in in the beers that you have on tap right now, and I think downstairs you have eleven house made beers on I mean, tap. There's like, twelve on 12. twelve. So really impressive out of some barrel brewery that
2: you, that you got. Uh, that. I've been. Uh, I'm here like six, uh, six and a half days a week. So, <laughs> so keep it,
1: keep it cranking, keep it flowing, you know? Well, and so what I noticed is that you, you seem to have an affinity for a lot of the sort of the newer German style hops. Like yeah Because I know skew melons across a couple of things mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um but uh, talk a little bit more about the about the brute you this is six percent yeah was it like you know uh, just two row and it's uh so this is all uh, Pilsner and uh flaked rice
2: okay um basically um the brewer up at social kitchen mm-hmm. uh kim uh basically kind of i guess is he's being deemed as the one kind of creating this style um and there's not really there's like a few paragraphs in an article that <laughs> yeah. he talked about it on. Which yeah, we, is basically, we, all we had to go
1: by. And, and we've league. talked about it before, and, yeah. and, and that's exactly why I based my my brew IPA that i was trying on. <laughs> you know, mine's uh, uh, pilsner and flake corn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know,
2: light light uh, light grain bill, cut it with some uh, you know some flake rice, flake corn, and adjunct like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just go for bone dry. Um, you, you have the uh, the enzyme you gotta you gotta throw in that'll uh, ours finished at uh, one play doh so 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 1004 yeah, ten oh four yeah standard? Yeah, ten oh four in standard yep um and some people are getting it to zero. some people I guess are going yeah I've seen into some people go like yeah like, like
1: I got this to point nine nine zero on the on the specific gravity skeleton. Like,
2: yeah so so you're going for bone dry I mean it's called brute uh, it's uh, kind of after brute like champagne yep. Um, so dry, spritzy, um, low bitterness, a lot of flavor. Um, you can try and emulate champagne flavors if you want. Some people, someone used champagne yeast, someone mm-hmm. up, up there. Um, yeah, this is just O5, yeah. SO5. And, uh, and then I threw the enzyme in post, uh, primary, mm-hmm. um, which is the, when I added my first dry hop ad as well. Um, and then, uh, once we passed our diacetyl test and knew we we were had bottomed out where we were at, um, dry hopped it again with the other uh, the Tau Blanc and heel Melon, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So six percent. Do you know roughly how many IBUs? Uh, it was it was about thirteen on the bittering side, and the rest was all whirlpool and dry hop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it came out to like. Mid thirties, I want okay. to say. I use BeerSmith, uh, still. So uh, I didn't want to say it was like mid thirties, if mm-hmm. I remember right. Mid thirties, high thirties.
1: And then do you remember how much, uh, how much in the dry hop, like, how, like how much you were uh, adding. So we're role? at about.
2: Uh, Greg's gonna get mad. At about four, a little over four
1: pounds a barrel. There we go. But uh, hey, you didn't specify what, at poundage. You just said four pounds.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and uh, that was my first time playing with the, uh, the Cryo Hops, mm-hmm. and uh, that was – those are – I like them a lot. They made a, nice, a real big impact, and uh, the other well, nice thing is you get a little more yield, so it's like – I was
1: going to say, at the, at the professional brewer level, we, we've been playing around with the homebrew level trying to find out, like, what's the best usage for them. Yeah, i, I got to imagine at the pro level, like, that increased yield has got to be a lifesaver. Yeah,
2: yeah. If you can get an extra half barrel or two out of a batch, that's – and you can do that consistently over a year. That's that's money, that's money, money, money.
1: And also uh, a little bit of relief on your uh, supply chain.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you can maybe you can uh, you know go a little aggressive with the hops, and your production manager <laughs> won't crucify <laughs> you when you do the cost analysis <laughs> on materials. Dude, you spend how much per barrel?
1: <laughs> Shh, it's okay. Sorry, it's okay. right. the beer's good. <laughs> you like it? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. Well, and and on this one, I mean, I'm getting. I mean, obviously, it's very dry, very crisp. Uh, I'm getting a little bit of that that sort of that rice sweetness. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, rice always tastes different in a beer than corn does. Yeah, yeah. You know, corn, corn's almost sugary sweet, and mm-hmm. rice is always sort of this sweet that fades very fast. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, you're going I mean, you have a solid bitterness in there. I mean, this is not. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. I probably could have backed it off a touch. Yeah. Um, but but then you got all of those hop oils that are running around in there. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think. I could see like having a nice big old glass of this. I mean, and of course it's funny that it's like 6% because I think it weren't Ken's original ones that they were talking about, like like five, five and a half-ish? Yeah, yeah. It's got to be hard to, to, to try and control that when you're when you're dropping an enzyme that's going to drop out your, your back. Yeah,
2: like first time for me, like it was, like I was planning on it finishing around one to zero, so like the beer wasn't, I like think it was like 12 Play-Doh mm-hmm. or something like starting. Uh, gravity, uh, so you know that's not a big of beer, but when you're bringing it down to not next to zero, like you you know, it's your ABV's up. So, um, so I tried to base it off of that. The bitterness thing was probably the hardest decision. Um, I probably we will pro- we'll probably do another one and I'll probably back it off just a touch, um, just because you know. Mm-hmm now i have a baseline so now i can go back and
1: well, i mean i mean that's what the stuff always is it's always yeah you know since the numbers don't really communicate what the organoleptic experience is exactly it's always a, a hey let's try that okay that that's what the numbers were let's back it off or or push it a little more yeah
2: yeah and as a brewer you you know okay if i bring this down to this or this up to this like you kind of as long as you have something to go by you generally at least you should uh commercially uh, be able to make the adjustments that you want and know, oh, I need more of this, less of this,
1: yeah. you know, whatever you it might be. You've got to learn your skill. Yeah. yeah. So now beyond the brute, though, what, what do you normally drink? Like, for, from your tap list. Would it, for me,
2: uh, I drink the IPA. I've been drinking the rye IPA. <laughs> Which
1: one? <laughs> was <gonna> say, yeah. <laughs>
2: um, the anniversary IPA uh, just came on. That one stays nice. That,
1: yeah, that, w- that was nice. That, that's what I had while Yeah, right? that, that one was
2: brewed uh, with Sactois yeast. So another semi-dry. You know, that finished at around one and a half. Because um, mm-hmm. that yeast is, you know, diastatic. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I drink that, the blonde that, a lot.
1: That yeast is weird yeast. is what that it's is. It's
2: really weird yeast. Yeah. And that, that was my first time. I did, I I did it probably not the intelligent thing of like using a new yeast and trying a new brewing technique with the brute. Like, Hey, let's do these for the anniversary and <laughs> see how it goes. I should, you know, I should have maybe, uh, I mean, they both came out great, yeah. I think, but, yeah. and people are liking them. So
1: no, no guts, no glory. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it'll get drank. Uh, it's never going to be that bad. Uh, I mean, I hope, <laughs> <laughs> you hope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always hope. So uh, now, so you're normally drinking the blonde, and- blonde, the pale, and nah, the IPA. Mm-hmm. I'm usually a hoppy guy or a lager guy, kind of like.
1: No, so is your, bl- is your blonde a lager or is it just? No, that, it's, a,
2: it's like a blonde. I, it's kind of Colsh-esque right. the way we 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 set it up, but uh, it's it's we just sell it as a blonde because it's just an easier way to mark to sell than all right explain what a culture is Did exactly everybody
1: you know, and and i think that's a fairly common tactic yeah so look let, let's talk a little bit about the uniqueness of the brewery because like i said i mean i mean this location i mean this was when i think i moved to la this was like a, a music club yeah it used to be chatneys yeah Chattany's. johnny
2: carson and uh dr everinson used to and the band used to come over and yeah, get well, yeah. saucy.
1: Yeah, well, because yeah, the the when old, you know, the, 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 old yeah. the old Tonight's uh, Tonight uh, Show studios are right uh, like what a block and a half away. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and so Simsies took this over, and I remember this area that we're in. All right, it's still a bar area over here, but the area where the bar uh, where the brewery is now was like originally like a little loungy type mm-hmm. area. And then they said, "Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna bring in a brewery and put it in there in there." And I'm like how does that work? Because again, we are on the second floor. That's a very valid
2: uh, question.
1: So up here on the second floor, we have the, all the, the brew rig, you know, the, mm-hmm. your, your HLT, your, your mash done, and everything else. And then downstairs below us are the, are the fermenters.
2: Yeah, the cellar's all downstairs.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and when we say downstairs, I mean, we mean the ground floor. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, this is not the basement. I know a lot of people like to put their cellars in the cellar, but not in this case. So, how did you guys wedge a seven-barrel brew rig onto the second floor?
2: Um, well, basically, we had to pull out some windows, and uh, we we had to uh, use a boom crane uh, and kind of just slide it in with the, the tanks on their backs, uh, which required us to use the uh, the cradles that they came in, the shipping cradles. Mm-hmm. We kind of had to, yeah, we kind of had to macgyver those a little bit and use those uh, on the boone crane and uh you can see where uh the crane hit uh the wall in one spot um but uh yeah we put it on the side uh the construction crew was continually the whole through the whole build out was like you guys sure you measured this right you double checked We're like yeah it's gonna fit it's gonna fit and so we we barely got it up uh but we got it up well
1: I'm, uh, i was gonna say looking at the the mash on over there i mean like your your funnel from the uh, the the mill mm-hmm. that c- it comes into it comes in the top of the mesh and, I mean, there's three inches off the off the ceiling.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah the, the, the auger runs from the auger to the uh, to the mesh, so It's real really really short. Um, and I, the auger. Well, I mean, we got the, we got our grist case and our mill over there. Like it's just we just crammed it in.
1: And by the way, for anybody who's ever thinking about the glamorous life of a brewer, remember we are talking again. We are on the second floor. You don't have a silo. I do not have a silo. So you're hucking 55 pound sacks uh, or 50 pound sacks uh, we're up the stairs. We
2: grain. Uh, we store kegs up here. Like once we uh, wash them, we'll we'll store some kegs up here. So uh, we uh, yeah, we get a lot of stair uh, workout. A lot of a lot of leg. Uh, yeah. Leg like exercises here. You,
1: you, you never skip leg day. No, every day is no, leg day. Every day is
2: leg like day. And uh, a graining out is 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 an adventure. Um, we basically have to grain into a tippy cart. Right. And basically out on that awning slash deck thing, we put a, a like a four by four tote bin, and we have to lift the tippy dump and dump the grain in there, and then we pallet jack that to the edge, and we forklift that down, and then. Park it out in the little
1: area we have for it. Well, but at least your beer transfers down to the cellar must be relatively straightforward.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We ran some, we ran some process piping uh, through a wall and down into the ceiling. So if you, when you walk in and look at the cellar, you'll see a couple of, like stainless steel stalactites uh, hanging from the ceiling. with a like, and you're like, what's that? And that's basically how we get the beer down there. Um, it's a, it's a hot water for CIPs on the tanks, and because uh, we. The only water hot water source we have is our HLT on the system, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so it's uh it's it's I lift the grain. we bring the grain upstairs and then we have to lift the spent grain again and it's it, we're lifting and we're stair mastering and yeah I, I I would think my buns would look a little better for but all this stair stuff, but, but
1: you are drinking a you know, beer so yeah, well, yeah that's probably a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I I have to ask how much of a uh, when you guys were moving that brewery in through those windows I mean we we can see the windows where we are Mm -hmm. like how I mean how tense were you
2: oh ridiculously I was like pulling my hair out We, (laughs) we were dealing with like literal like inches of like space and there's just a guy on the roof yelling to the guy operating the crane who cannot see it all a completely blind shot, uh, and he's telling them, you know, up a little to the left, get your angle down, or whatever. And because this is not uh, a thing you want to like, dig. Oh, yeah, yeah, you don't want you don't want your your brand new expensive brew house to like fall 15 feet. And I'm pretty sure that they, you know, the premier isn't gonna uh, refund us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, there's no insurance on that. No,
1: no. But and and also, I can only imagine that the uh, city review must have been fun to to get. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Look, we're gonna put a brew rig up on the second floor with all the liquid weight in the grain. uh,
2: My manager actually was the lucky guy that got to deal with most of the city planning uh, stuff. Yeah, Uh,
1: that's an engineering nightmare. You know what I
2: mean? Yeah. Yeah. It was. uh, It's a trick. But this building's. uh, I mean, this building has i beams uh, on the supporting the second floor, so it's pretty. It's built like a tank. I was, like we're, I was sitting, like, we're that sitting was, under one of the high beams right now. Yeah, that was my first question. I was like, so this can support this weight, right? Because, you know, the system weighs, I don't know, a couple thousand, fifteen hundred well, thousand, it's whatever it's it is. Seven
1: barrels of water plus all the grain that you got in there. Uh, and it's not yeah, just seven barrels HLT, of water. Yeah. And,
2: and, you know, you get your kettle or whatever. Like, yeah. I was because like, ah, water's okay. heavy. Water is heavy. Yes. And the uh, grain's heavy and, you know, stainless steel is heavy. And, yeah. So, luckily, it's still up here on the second floor. It hasn't fallen down to the lobby yet. So, uh, so we're, we're going to keep it continuing until, uh, you know.
1: Don't, uh, don't worry, listeners, we'll update you if it ever falls down into the lobby. I don't think it will. But. No, I don't think so either. So <laughs> let me ask, now that you've moved from being a home brewer to being a pro brewer, are there any sort of pieces of common brewing wisdom that you think that, you think that people need to ignore, you know, or that they're just not true? Um,
2: I don't, well, I know when I was learning how to homebrew, you'd like let your mash rest for like 45 minutes or something mm-hmm. is what I was told. And I go about 20 to 30, depending on the grain bill. If I have a lot of like, like say flaked oats or something mm-hmm. like that, I'll go 30 minutes. But well,
1: our, our malt today is so enzymatically powerful. though. Well, it's like- yeah.
2: Most like modified malt. I mean. 15 minutes, and you're probably assuming correct pH and everything else. Uh, 15, 20 minutes, you're probably converted fully.
1: But uh, but also, for the listeners, I mean, keep in mind that when you're dealing with professional brew volumes, I mean, you still have all that time for research, you still have time when things are sitting. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, it's, it's not just 15 off. minutes of, of rest, it's 15 minutes of rest plus all the other time to yeah, move yeah. liquids around. It ends up being you know, 25, 30 anyways, yeah. or whatever. But. Yeah. but I mean, you can still, I mean, I, I think th- there's a lot of stuff going on out there that's showing that yeah you can run a lot faster than your traditional 45 60 minute. Uh, oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. So uh,
2: so that's probably the, that's a real big one for me. Um, other than that, like there's some stuff uh, they had a, a a seminar at at CBC in Nashville um, on uh, kettle sours mm-hmm. and kind of like misnomers and stuff like uh, things about butyric acid and that sort of thing and. And people like when I was I did kettle sours out at Wix and like one of the things that I was talking to other brewers about is like, Oh, you can't get oxygen in there, can't right. get oxygen in there. And butyric acid is actually anaerobic. Right. Uh so so oxygen free environment is better for him. Well, <laughs> so, and so it's just like these, he had all these misnomers that like he just broke it down and and uh, on a few different things. And
1: well and, and uh, butyric acid is the vomitus
2: Yes, right. So, That's the
1: puky one. Yeah, so if you don't, uh, yeah, and I and I remember or the baby diaper. Uh, yeah, baby diaper vomitus and yeah, uh, yeah everything very pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> so and yeah, the 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 myth has always been out there, or, or the technique has always been out there. I should say that mm-hmm. you know uh, flood your kettle with CO2 so that you don't. Yeah. And the homebrewers are doing the same thing, and yeah, I mean it turns out that you don't really need to do that, but at the same time, there's a lot of people who still do it just because safety blanket. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And well
2: and you know, a lot of I mean even homebrewers know this uh, feeling confident in your process and what you're doing is kind of a big thing. Oh yeah. It's kind of like being a pitcher and knowing that your stuff's good that day. You're going to go out there and you're gonna, you're going to do well. So uh, when what? you're unconfident or you're unsure, that's when you can make a mistake or you start double, que- you know, questioning yourself, uh, you know, double thinking things and you're like, "Oh, maybe I won't do this." And and then you get mm-hmm. things can get
1: squirrely. Well, and I was I mean, I, I think, you know, we do a lot of experimentation type stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are other homebrewers out there who are doing experiments and, and doing write-ups like brew me and whatnot. And I think all of us have encountered this idea that, you know, we, we do these experiments, we show that, you know, there are things that everybody thinks that matter that don't really seem to actually matter and whatnot. And eh, damned if homebrewers will ever give any of that up or any oh, brewer yeah, yeah, because, yeah. because, again, it's that same thing. It's like, I know this works. Go away.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah if it works I mean stick with it you know yeah. go with it but uh I'm always trying to see if I can improve something or or you know help well, on the timeline like make things go faster, use less materials and get the same results like you know whatever you can do this, this is things commercial people think about because you're trying to you know you get your margins up or whatever you know it it well, is a business I mean
1: every hour that you spend doing something that's another you know, another hit against the wages yeah, yeah. you know every extra pound of grain you use is another Another hit. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, homebrewers can get away with a lot because, uh, whatever. (laughs) Exactly. Which is, which is, you know, the beauty of homebrewing, to be honest. But, well, I was going to say, is there anything, is there anything from homebrewing that you miss, you know, now that you're a commercial brewer? Because I'm assuming you don't homebrew
2: anymore. (laughs) No, I haven't homebrewed in a while. I was doing meads for a little bit because I could just kind of ignore them and, and they'd be okay. And then I don't even do that anymore. The, 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 the free nature of it. I miss um, I still feel kind of like a homebrewer that homebrewer feeling when I'm like on brew days and mm-hmm. I'm brewing uh, or we're you know we're trying a new beer uh, like we just tapped or whatever um, I still get that yes that little kinda, rush. yeah that little excitement kind of thing um, the business aspect is just part of the game and some people I think that's probably the biggest challenge for homebrewers that are transitioning to pro is the is the it's not all it's not all fun and games. It's right. not like when you're home brewing, you, you get you know you got all the, the the permits and the legal stuff and the taxes and the you know now you got to worry about this that and the other now you got to
1: track your inventory you got to yeah. track you know yeah you, you know, your cost per you, barrel
2: you got to yeah when you when you, you're like i thought we were just going to be making beer and having fun like no no it's like uh yeah so so that was a bigger wake up call for me when i first uh switched over um and i mean it makes sense that that's how it would be cuz you're going from a kind of a carefree i'm just doing what i want and i'm brew what i want to drink and now you have to brew the people that are going to come and give you money (laughs) Mm -hmm. you have to prove what they want and that's not necessarily what you want but you can you can mix the two together Mm -hmm. and and have your own little unique kind of uh, take on a on a tap list
1: well I was gonna say I mean I think being a brewer at a like a little brew puppy type situation like this is although you've got the other uh, supply challenges or being like a a brewer at a small tap Mm -hmm. room type facility I think you still get some of that freedom, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's
2: why I I really love uh, the brew pub setting um, because it is that you're just kind of the neighborhood spot. Like, I like that aspect. Like, I don't necessarily have the desire to take over the world and open breweries from coast to coast and, 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 you know, know, national distribution or anything. Like, I'd love to just be, like, the go-to spot for Burbank because, you know, I'll be happy as a clam.
1: Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm just happy now that uh, Burbank and other parts of L.A. actually have go-to spots. And yeah. when I moved here, yeah. they didn't.
2: Oh, yeah. Burbank's got, a, you know, you got uh, Lincoln and Verdugo West. Uh, Henson yeah. just opened up, yep. which I'm going to go try and check out this weekend. Uh, and I know
1: Breweryard is technically Glendale, but still really. Yeah, they're still the homies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Glendale's cool.
2: <laughs> Close <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so it's expanding out here. You got the Valley, you know, the Van Nuys guys like McLeod yep. and uh, you got, uh, what, Celador's up there, I believe?
1: Solidors in Van Nuys. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean. Uh, and we've know. had
1: Kevin on the show before.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're doing great stuff. They get, they're get they getting their tap room uh, open soon. I think they mm-hmm. just got approved for it. Yep. So uh, that's great. Um, I'm looking forward to that. And then you got Wolf Creek up uh, in Valencia. That's been. They've 20, been there forever.
1: Yep. 20 years? Something like that. Um, yeah, I, um, I think. I Something think Wolf crazy. Creek. Yeah, Wolf Creek opened just a little bit after I moved to LA. Yeah, yeah.
2: I, I know it's at least twenty years. So I mean, you know, uh Robin Lane are great people. So it's it's cool. Like uh yeah, it's nice it's nice seeing a – it's kinda reminds me of uh when Riverside started going to their their mm-hmm. little craft bloom and uh it's cool. You guys, you see people coming out and like uh here I'm seeing regulars getting turned into more craft beer types, like
1: hey. LA has got 80 breweries now. LA County, I should say, has 80 mm-hmm. breweries now, mm-hmm. on the in the guild, and we still have plenty of room to go.
2: Oh yeah, I I don't even know how many are in planning
1: right now. I'm sure there's oodles. Yeah. Uh, so now before uh, before we leave, is there any beer that you know? So I mean, obviously you said before that you like your IPAs, you like your pale and you like your bond. Is there any beer that you want to brew because it's something that you want to drink that you're not brewing right now? Um, I'd love to do.
2: Like a smoked beer, I really want to kind of do one of those old school smoke pails. I like kind of like the old. I think British used to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget the name of. There's one that I had before, and it was just gorgeous. I when when smoked beers are done right, I, I'm like a, a huge fan. All right. Uh, um, the,
1: the problem is when smoked beers is done poorly.
2: Oh yeah, then it's you know you're eating a Kingsford briquette, or you're, it's just like you know. I'm
1: in the middle of a campfire. Yeah. Ah, <laughs>
2: Exactly, your clothes smell like smoke. You're just, you just, know, uh, yeah, so something like that. And I'll probably get one, maybe in the fall or something. well, um, oh, that's a perfect time. I think it, yeah. it, it,
1: it yeah. would be fire season here in LA. So yeah, <laughs>
2: exactly. So do like a, do a little seven barrel batch. Usually I do, I'll do a seven or something if I'm unsure of how the uh, yeah tickle the toes in the water. And then oh, people liked it. Okay, let's you know let's pop a fifteen out and go from there.
1: All right, and then uh, all right. So final question. Anything else that, uh, or actually next last question because I'm an idiot. So next last question. Any other tips that you think, you know, particularly for homebrewers, something that they should think about, you know, when they're looking at the brews, when they're planning out the brews, or when they're just brewing.
2: Um, as far as like like uh, design of like recipes, um, if you're not. You make sure you're adjusting for pH and your water chemistry, like gypsum, calcium chloride. Um, That'll... I mean, that'll... uh, Water's your biggest main... It's your main ingredient. Uh, You're just flavoring it with stuff. So set the stage right with
1: that. I was going to say, and here in LA, even though we we have a blend from NWD, Hmm. we have pretty decent water. Uh, Water's not bad. Yeah, yeah. Water's not bad. A little
2: hard, but, uh, you know throw a little, uh, phosphoric acid in there and, you know, get it five, two, five, four, the pH in that range. And that'll actually, uh, if you're not doing that, that'll actually, uh, maximize your, uh, extract, uh, efficiency as well. If you're doing all grain or, or mini mash. Yeah. So
1: LA water seems to me to be pretty decent for anything except for the extremes. Yeah. You can't go too pale and you can't go too dark without doing something to it.
2: Oh yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Other than that, like, you know, just uh, know what you want to do and do it and uh, just play around, have fun. I I would just brew, I'd brew like twice a weekend for probably a couple years, Um, just making weird stuff and trying and just getting to know you the ingredients is like the key as far as like recipe design and you can only do that when you use them, so... Do some, you know, some smash beers if you want to check out some hops or some base malts. uh, You know, things like that. Just don't uh, be critical of yourself. Uh, Everyone will tell you your beers are great, but you... But but you know that's a lie. You know if your beer is super great. So uh, be critical. Uh, It's okay. You know, I beat myself up. I'm the worst one here like... They're amazed when I say I really like a beer that's coming out. They're like you like this one? I'm like, yeah, it came out pretty good, you know.
1: Stop the presses! Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, yeah, just uh, don't get uh, you know, don't get complacent. Just keep uh, keep after it.
1: Great, all right. And then, other than punk rock and beer, what's something other than beer that you're deeply passionate about? Um, the greatest,
2: uh, biggest uh, soccer team in the world that would be Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> glory glory
1: yeah again uh, another member of the la brewers football fanatics yes yes it is uh it's a savage
2: world but uh yeah but we have fun with it
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much herbie i yeah, appreciate you taking you. the time to sit it. down i know we got we got a party that's going on downstairs
2: oh yeah maybe we should go uh, see what's going yeah, on we're gonna get you some of that hog that they're uh, cooking out there there we go <laughs> all right Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it, Drew.
0: Man, that was uh, that was really fascinating. Man, he sounds like a great guy, and uh, in spite of the fact that he's uh, a little pedantic about his beers.
1: <laughs> well, I love Herbie. I, Herbie is great, and yeah, it's really great to see him in front of you know, sort of his own his own brewery. He's been brewing for a number of years for other people, and so now he actually gets to showcase himself. The brute that we had in the in the episode, I mean, that was really really uh, tasty. It was yeah, you I know, had that sort of. Odd little ricey sweetness to it, almost like a a rice candy. You know, the ones with the old rice paper wrappers, that that initial hit of rice sweetness that hit you. It had a little bit of that along with all that sort of fluffy champagne-like carbonation. So it was was a hell of an experience. And, of course, I I just have to laugh at the fact that I wandered into their first anniversary party. (laughs) Good job, man. Good job. Hey, I'm look, I'm in nothing if not talented. So uh, <laughs> yeah. if you're at, in the Burbank area at all, you know, make sure that you swing by Simsies. Uh, go, go give them a shout out. Give them a try. They have some pretty decent food, too. It's a nice little space. And Herbie's making some awesome beers. Or if you're not in Burbank, but you're near one of the other Simsies, make sure to stop by and have some of their beer. Cool.
0: All right, stick around. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have questions and answers, a quick tip, something other, and then get out of here and get on with your day and our day. So please stick around. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. Thanks for sticking around and checking out our sponsors. We're going to get started here with some questions and see what kind of answers we can come up with. The first one is for Drew, and it comes from Nathan Sarlo, who says, I love the interview with Andy, but I was wondering if there's really any gain in double mashing versus just doubling or increasing your boil time. One of my all-time favorite beers is New Holland triple mashed dragon's milk, but I always assumed it was a gimmick. What say ye, Drew?
1: It's entirely possible it was a gimmick. But I will say in the terms of the double mashing, um, both when I've done it and both with the sample that I had from Andy, uh, that there is a difference. Right, so I find that with the sort of longer boiled beers, you get more of that sort of uh, caramelization-y type character. You know, those kind of more dark burnty sugar type flavors, I think. Uh, things tend to concentrate more. Of course, you also uh, tend to get a sort of a stouter mineral character uh, to the beer, thanks to the boil down. Um, with the double mash beers, what I really found that I got was a more intense all-enveloping uh, mouthfeel and malt character, right? It, it was more like it painted the tongue and and the roof of your mouth with malt. Now, whether or not that's the power of suggestion or if that's the actual you know end result of the technique, I think we'd have to pull off an experiment to do and to, to uh, do the determination on. But at least for me and to my take, if you're really trying to make something uniquely intense I think the double mashing might be a thing to look at. I I can't speak to triple mashing at all in New Holland because I've never actually heard of anybody doing a triple mash. So take that for what you will. But at least on the double mash side of the house, yeah, I really felt like there was something there. Um, the technique itself is a pain in the butt and it takes a little more labor. But look, if you're going to make something special and you may or may not be limited by your equipment, I think it's
0: worth a go. Well, uh, then go. <laughs> yeah um i you know what it's it's a very interesting concept and uh drew and i have beers from our listener jim leininger who uh, did a double mash stout and uh, one of these days we'll get around to reviewing them and telling you about it
1: yeah we really should all right well and our next question uh, eric pierce is back and you know denny since i uh, since i got to have so much fun at the beginning of the episode i think you should read this question for yourself
0: no no, no man it's your turn to read it
1: no 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 it's your turn
0: okay while I'm on the topic of that smoked wheat beer we were talking about earlier... Cheater. I was... Uh, yeah. I was reading the Wikipedia page on this beer and came across this. The smoke from the malting process also adds chemical components to the finished product that help preserve it, giving it a long shelf life despite its low alcohol content. One story is told of a box of that beer being found in the 1950s buried in the sands of North Africa that was left behind by German soldiers during world war II, The beer was opened and found to be as fresh as the day it was made. Well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Then I found this about Alaskan brewing and their Alaskan smoke porter. As far as we know, Alaskan smoke porter has no real end to its shelf life. Said Jeff Larson, co-founder of Alaskan brewing. We're still enjoying vintages from our cellar that date back to 1993 when we started leaving some yeast in the bottle for better aging. What the heck could be going on here? What is it about smoked malt that makes it act as a preservative? Or does it hide the flavors of spoilage? One thing for sure I can say is that a low ABV smoked malt beer does not protect it from my basement funk. Very curious about this. It made me think it would be a fun experiment. But where could we simulate the sands of North Africa? Uh, Burning Man, maybe? Brew and ferment on site? Quick, high-temp, low ABV, and bury it. Dig it up a year later, brew ferment again on site, and triangle test. The chance of me making it to Burning Man, let alone brew beer there, is next to nil. A case or two of bottles next to the furnace in my basement may have to suffice. Pretty crazy, but hey, you know me, I'm full of crazy ideas. Yes, yes, you are, Eric, uh, and this is, this is one of them. Um, you know, I, I just don't know what to say. Uh, obviously, you, when you smoke meat or fish or something like that, it acts as a preservative because you're basically dehydrating it. Uh, I don't know what about the smoke itself would do it. I can't imagine why it would work on malt, but, you know, those are a couple interesting citations. Uh, you got any any hard facts there, Drew? Hard facts,
1: no, but I have opinions. So, <laughs> in this particular case, I know exactly what he's talking about. Because, yeah, Alaskan Smoke Porter is one of those beers that just seems to hang around forever. And whether or not it's because there is an antioxidant effect to the to the malt, I I can't say. But I will say this one one thing I do know is smoke. You know the 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 set of phenols that make up our perceived thing that we call smoke. They are, organoleptically speaking, one of the most sensitive things that humanity has going for it. So when you look at like tasting thresholds or, or sensory thresholds for various you know, chemical compounds out there, you know some of them are measured in parts per million. Some of the ones that were uh, really sensitive to are measured in parts per billion. So that means like you know a hundred parts per you know per billion means you only need a hundred molecules of that in a billion molecules and you'll be able to detect it. Smoke, all of these various phenols that we think of as smoke, some of those compounds have sensitivity threshold levels in the parts per trillion. So whether or not you want to think of it as an evolutionary protective mechanism or something like that, smoke is one of those things that the second it, there's even a tiny little bit of it, our brains pick up and hone in on it. So my guess would be at least, you know, Eric, you said kind of covering it up. I think that's kind of a case here. It's not really covering up. It's just that our brains are so attuned to the idea of smelling smoke because of the danger signal that smoke is in the wild that it hits the brain hard and fast and, and furious. So that's my guess.
0: Yeah, you know what? Um, covering it up is one thing. It still doesn't really explain things to my satisfaction. So uh, if any of you super sciency people out there have an idea why it may be that smoking malt Kind of gives you preservative qualities to the beer. I, I would love to hear something more than, well, it's not really preserving the beer. It's just covering up the bad stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, there may be an antioxidant effect or maybe something else.
0: Yeah. But I, again, I, I don't know the chemistry well enough to know.
1: I, I'm fairly certain that chemistry is going to be ugly. So our last question comes from Tim Wood, uh, who says, uh, Gentlemen, big fan of the show. Always enjoy listening to the latest shows on my drive home from work. One topic I would like to learn about is creating water profiles. And what I mean is, how do I know what to put into my current water to get it to a traditional profile? I live in Portland, Oregon with a fairly soft water. And his water is pretty soft from the readings that he's yeah. given us. Uh, and I, But I enjoy making traditional English brown nails. So far, all the water calculators tell me what my water profile needs to look like, but not how to get there. Any good tools out there that show me what and how much to add? Uh, well,
0: yeah, brewing water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brewing, brewing water is is the tool, uh, uh, and that that will tell you. I mean, think of brewing water as a as a spreadsheet for water. And when you use a spreadsheet, you play what if games with it. Uh, you know, you like put in a value, see what that does. Put in another value, see what that does. And that's kind of the way brewing water works. You pick a target profile, you input your uh, water profile that you have, and you've got that. So then you just kind of start playing around, making additions to try and uh, get your water profile to match the target profile. It's kind of like a video game in some ways, huh? That would be a very boring video game.
1: But yes. It, I think it's exciting. <laughs> you're allowed to. But, uh, I mean, Denny's right. Brewing water, you know, treat it like a spreadsheet because, uh, the secret, it is a spreadsheet. Uh, yeah. um and use that. That will uh, that will help die in fairly quickly. It's it's amazing how how much it simplifies the idea of water chemistry for you and it gets you into the ballpark. The other thing is also, uh, remember, go back a few episodes back, I think now like episode 60 or so, we talked about some uh, traditional British water tables. So you comparing like things like what we learn here in America as sort of British water styles versus what some of the Brits actually look at uh, for their water styles when they're brewing beer. And it turns out they like their beers with a hell of a lot more minerals than we do. So yeah. if you're wanting something that is a very traditionally English take, on those water profiles as opposed to like what you'd learn from the BJCP and whatnot, then go and look uh, at the link in, I think, like I said, episode 60, 62, somewhere in that area, and you'll be able to see uh, exactly what we're talking about here because, yeah, some of those uh, numbers are way off from what we usually use. But brewing water, it's the secret. It's the Jimmy Jam, and it makes uh, water fairly straightforward.
0: Right, and uh, one little tip, when you're picking your target profile, you'll see things like... Uh, Oh, like Amber, Malty, uh, Yellow, Bitter, stuff like that. Use those to get your water profile uh, target. Do not, by any means, use the profiles for various cities there. Martin, put them in uh, mainly for curiosity. You have no idea if that's what the brewer is actually using or not. So just because you're uh, making a Burton ale, don't use the Burton on Trent profile for example yeah
1: remember water is one of those things where you want to get into a general range because the water chemistry itself is sort of strange and you know it's mystical and magical and involves quantum mechanics uh yeah and you really you're not the human palate isn't so sensitive that it's going to detect that you're five ions off over here you know you want to just get into the general bar, ballpark and you'll be
0: fine yep that's right hey i think that we're about done huh
1: I think so, too. So it's time for a quick tip. And this week I'll bring you the quick tip, which I think is very important because, of course, you know, in this day and age of Instagram and beer photography, you know, it is a thing. We have to revisit it from time and time and again. Keep those beer glasses clean, people. It's the very last part of your step of, of brewing, your very last part of enjoyment. Make sure that you keep your beer glasses clean. I'm imperfect at this as well. You know, as a lot of people will tell you don't use soap. Don't, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. First things first, keep your glasses rinsed well. And then uh, the other thing is I actually still do use soap. I also rinse my glasses really well. The other thing is if you still find yourself having problems, like you have too many uh, water spots or something like that, also consider doing either a acid rinse, like vinegar, for instance, and again, rinse it well so you don't smell like vinegar anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Otherwise, suddenly every beer that you have is going to smell like a lambic. And the other one is if you also have some stubborn stuff, actually use a little bit of wet salt as a slurry and scrub out your glasses. So do that. Yeah, I, I find... I find the salt scrub to be really, really effective for me. Yeah, because the real thing is what you're trying to do is you're trying to kill any sort of stuff clinging to the side of the glass that's going to provide nucleation sites. And you're also going to try and kill you know, any fats that are hanging out there. And the salt scrub does a really good job of, of getting rid of that. Again, rinse your glass well so that your beer doesn't taste salty. And if you do those sorts of things, guess what? You're going to have Instagrammable beer photos in a heartbeat. <laughs> right on. And one of these days, I'll remember to do
0: it myself. <laughs> i you know I do it once in a while, most of the time I just uh pour a beer and go, crap, I should have done that yeah that's my usual <laughs> that's my usual <laughs> all righty, and you have something other this week also
1: I do, and once again to nobody's surprise, it's a youtube video i'm I've been a big fan of the TED Talks for a long period of time. I know they get, a, you know, some people have a very glib reaction to the TED Talks. Uh, there's one that came out recently that I think is uh, very important and it's from uh, Rebecca Kleinberger who is with, uh, you know, MIT, you know, so near and dear to my heart. And uh, she talks about, you know, the reasons that you don't like the sound of your own voice and the difference between your interior voice and your exterior voice and how other people perceive you and what you can hear and what you can't. And I will tell you right now, as as we've done this podcast for the last couple of years, and Danny will Denny will confirm this in a heartbeat, one of the hardest parts for me is to go and listen to my own voice, uh, because it doesn't sound like my voice sounds like to me. So yeah, it's taken a number of years of just constant exposure to finally go, oh, that's just the idiot who's talking into the microphone. Um, but this is really interesting because it gets into the science about it and sort of, yeah. You know, how those differences also help shape how you communicate. So really kind of cool. It's a TED Talk, so it's 12, 15 minutes long. Go listen to it and you know, learn some science behind why exactly you don't like the sound of your own voice.
0: Yeah, you know, as somebody who's been involved in the recording industry for 50 years, this is something I'm well, well aware of.
1: Yeah, yeah it's no fun. We all hate it. So
0: (laughs) there we go. Yep. Time to get out of here. Time to get out of here. So thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and on the Slack Homebrew channel. You can find me hanging around a bunch of different beer forums, uh, mainly the AHA discussion forum. I'm on Beer Borg. I'm on Brews Brothers. I'm a bunch of places. So come on out and find me and talk beer. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com and he's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. And remember, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626 765 one ale So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.